Hey guys, before we start today's show, I want to talk to you about a couple different things, really. Obviously, in today's crazy world with uh, governments going tyrannical across the globe from Australia to Austria and even right here in the United States, um, it's more important than ever not only to um, have your own personal mobility and uh, ability to move around to make income wherever you move, but also to protect your wealth. And our friend Mikhail Thorup of the Expat Money Show is the best of, of the best at helping you do that. And he has a podcast, The Expat Money Show. You should definitely subscribe and listen to that. But today, what I'm here to talk to you about is a free, some free materials, some free information. They're going to help you to sleep like a baby knowing that no one will ever raid your personal Fort Knox. What Mikkel has put together, um, it is a free infographic report. It's 19 international strategies to protect and grow your wealth. Um, it's going to help you to safeguard and grow multi-generational wealth for your dependents um, to get ironclad protection so strong that no lawyer will ever consider suing you. Um, really, it's going to make creditors you know, terrified to even look at your personal assets, and it'll help you to defend yourself from governments trying to steal your money through taxation. As libertarians, we know taxation is theft, but guys, arm yourself with something that is going to help you to fight back against those uh, overreaching, coercive governments. You can go to expatmoneyshow.com slash lions to pick up that report today. That's expatmoneyshow.com slash lions. And uh, go there today and get your free report. We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. All right, my guest today on Finding Freedom is Angela Wright. Um, Angela Wright is a, another not first time nonviolent offender um, on this show. We've had so many of them um, who was, in my opinion, very much over sentenced and did did a lot of time in prison. Um, so she was uh, convicted of conspiracy to distribute fifty or more kilos of cocaine. Uh, prior to you know her time in prison, she was a she was a school teacher. Uh, so her her sentence, the one that you know that she got before it was reduced, was. 364 months in prison. She ended up serving 13 years, 10 months, and 20 days. She was finally released um, on January 13th of this year, 2021. Angela, welcome to Finding Freedom. Thank you so much for having me, John. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's great to great to get to speak with you. And you know, I always got to thank uh, Malik King for uh, you know making these connections and helping to, uh, you know, bring these stories forward. So without people like Malik, you know, introducing me to people and uh, this, these podcasts like this really, really wouldn't happen. So Malik King is an angel sent. He, uh, he kept up in touch with me the entire time. You know, I was incarcerated mm -hmm. and uh, one particular time I did about 17 months in the shoe, which is solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. And he made sure I had literature to read and he just kept me abreast. So he's he's just a godsend. I love Malik. 
He's he's the best. So let, let's uh, the, w- the way we'll do this is we'll kind of start at the beginning and, and go through your story, kind of from from you know beginning until until where, where you are today. So going back to uh, you know before you were arrested, before you were convicted, sentenced, all that stuff. Um, you were a a school teacher, right? Yes, so, I was a school teacher. Um, I'm originally born and raised in New Jersey. I came to Atlanta and uh, to I attended Clark Atlanta University. Went to college mm-hmm. there, and I graduated and uh, taught school for about two years for the city of Atlanta. Gideon's Elementary is where I taught uh, mm-hmm. third grade, and um, actually uh, one of my students I ended up getting custody of them, custody of him because his parents. You know, on drugs and everything. So I end up getting custody of him. But yes, I taught school, and then um, kind of got caught up. And it just, you know, yeah. So, yeah. so, so, what happened to take us through take us through that that period in your life? Okay, so for one, uh, John, I always just like had a knack for dating bad guys. So I've always mostly dated drug dealers. So you know, mm-hmm. dating drug dealers along with that, you know, that lifestyle just comes um greed greed so greed setting you know and then like i had like play brothers and friends so it was easy for me to be able to make connections so i would was like the go-to girl and at, at first i started out just counting money and i used to get paid to count money package it up bundle it for it to be you know sent to where it had to go and um from there i kind of just started like, hey, I know such and such that wants such and such and, you know, like brokering deals, brokering mm-hmm. cocaine deals or whatever. And next thing you know, I was full-fledged in it. Stopped teaching school and um, just was full-fledged in the streets. Well, you said you grew up not in Atlanta. Where'd you grow up originally? Uh, I was born and raised in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and I attended high school at Lakewood. Okay. Uh, father's a pastor, mom's a nurse. Um, the first one to graduate college and the first one to go to prison. <laughs> yeah, so. So, so your your upbringing in, in New Jersey was pretty far removed from. Would you say it was far removed from that lifestyle that you got into in Atlanta? Very far removed. We yeah. we were a family. My father, um, outside of pastor, he also worked at Ford Ford Motor Company. Uh, mm-hmm. As a little girl, my dad worked at Ford Motor Company, and uh, my mom was a housewife. Uh, up until probably I would say about the sixth grade, then you know she went to school, nursing school, and became a nurse. But um, we had the type of family, John, where we sat down and ate dinner together every night at the same time mm-hmm. and said a Bible verse before we ate dinner. You know, because I, my father, you know, I come from a very uh, Christian back, you know, home. So my like that lifestyle was just far removed. And then when I did get involved, it was like you know living a double life, basically. Yeah, so, so when when you got when you got yourself in, in that situation and you're 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 getting involved in the in the drug trade, um, and, and maybe and maybe you didn't realize it until you were arrested. But did you start to get a sense like, oh, oh man, I'm, I'm getting myself in a situation here. If I get you know caught here, um, I could end up doing you know a bunch of time. I never thought it would be that much time. I have friends mm-hmm. who went to prison and everything, so you know. With anything, I'm a, I'm a pretty smart girl, you know. I'm 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 not oblivious to to laws and stuff like that. But I just didn't think it would be that much time. I knew it was a possibility of getting in trouble, but I always felt like I would say, "Oh, they'll just I'll get five years and I'll be home in three. You know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll serve three years, I'll be home. That's light. I can I can do that. I used to joke and say, "Oh, I could do that standing on my head." But when it came down to it, 
no, it was quadruple that. <laughs> so at what point in time did you know what, like what they were charging you with and the potential time that you could serve? Was that pretty immediate after the arrest or, or did that? No, immediately after the arrest, um, you know, they take you to a room, of course, and try to get you to cooperate. And um, of course, I wasn't cooperating. So mm -hmm. uh, they tell you they tell you things like, oh, you're never going to see your parents and you never see your son again. Your parents will be dead. They tell you all these things. But in my head, I'm like, no, that's not true. I've never been in any trouble before. You know, I'm not thinking mm -hmm. about y'all. That's what I'm saying. But I just didn't say anything. I didn't find out exactly how much time I was facing until what's called a pre-sentencing investigation report came out. Um, I had already been in, in jail maybe four months, about four months I had been in jail. And then that's when I got the pre-sentencing investigation report. And it said that I was facing 360 months to life. So the, the pre-sentencing investigation report, this was after the conviction? Yes, it comes after the conviction. Okay. Um, so what, what kind of legal representation did you have? I had a paid lawyer uh, the first time and the second time. First lawyer was uh, Clifford Clifford Davis out of Monticello, Florida, because my case was over the Panhandle, Georgia, Florida, Alabama. But I was tried mm. down in Panama City, Florida, and um, I retained a guy named Clifford Davis. Paid a uh, seventy five thousand dollars for nothing because I ended up with thirty years. And yeah. um, once we lost, you know, he was saying, "Oh, you always have a back door." Could tell, but he knew that cooperating wasn't even, that wasn't even an option for me. So, yeah, that was my first lawyer. And then I had a second appeal lawyer out of Jacksonville, Florida. But nothing worked. You know, $100,000 in, John, and nothing worked. And believe it or not, my first sentence reduction came from a lady in prison who wrote a motion for me. You know how much mm -hmm. I paid her? A creamer and a, a coffee, and she didn't want that. So it was about $8 to get, like, eight years off my sentence. <laughs> now, that's that's value right there. I yeah, mean, come on. yeah, great value. <laughs> you, you can't beat that. So the other co-conspirators in your case, what kind of time did they get? Okay, so I was indicted originally by myself. I got indicted by myself and then on okay. February 24th. And then about three weeks later, they came back and gave me a superseding indictment and gave me a co-defendant, uh, which was the guy that I was dating at the time. And um, what I didn't know, unbeknownst to me at the time, when they did that, it was because he started cooperating. So he basically, that he was facing a mandatory minimum of 20 because he had been in trouble before. Mm -hmm. So they told him if he told on me that they would cut his time. So... He, he gave me up and they wow. gave him, he only got 10 years. And um, out of the 10 years, he ended up getting a crack law reduction. I think he might've served three years. Wow. Yeah. And this is what they call the justice system. I mean, yeah. that's, uh, that's yeah. just insanity. And, and, and what's crazy, uh, everyone who, who testified against me, all had, a, all had a background, all had been in trouble before. Mm -hmm. I was the only one, but basically it was like my uh, education was used against me because when the judge was sentencing me, he uh, he made the remark that he seen women come in his courtroom, you know, maybe rented a car, uh, put phones in their name, had money or held drugs at their house. But he never seen a woman uh, such as myself to manipulate everybody else, use them as puppets, as he said, to alleviate the possibility of ever getting caught with drugs in my hands. So he said I was smart and I just manipulated everybody else. So my education basically backfired on me. 
So, so they what, what kind of evidence did they have? Did they have any evidence other than the uh, the hearsay testimony of, no. of all these all these people who come through who obviously had something to gain either in sentence reduction or um, there, I mean, there's incentives obviously in their favor to uh, to speak out against you in favor of themselves. Yeah, they um they had no <laughs> wiretaps, no uh, no surveillance. They didn't have anything. They had um, 11 kilos in the courtroom that a driver had got caught with, pulled over with, leaving Atlanta, going back to Florida. But even that, I, my fingerprints wasn't on anything. They basically just had hearsay testimony. Everyone mm-hmm. testified against me for exchange of a lighter sentence for themselves. They, they, it's called a dry conspiracy. That's what they call it in the, you know, in the dress. It's called a dry conspiracy. Why do they? Do you know why they call it a dry conspiracy? Because it's no, it's basically no tangible evidence, nothing like a wiretap or anything like that. So they call mm-hmm. it a dry conspiracy. Okay, I've heard it, it, it like the drugs in a case like that referred mm-hmm. to as ghost dope. Yeah, um, no, now the, the ghost dope. Okay, so like I said, they had eleven kilos in the courtroom, but mm-hmm. um, they charged me with one hundred and fifty-four. And then that sentencing, I think the judge took it down to 76. But that was the yeah. ghost dope because the physical dope that they had in the courtroom was 11. And that was just all of the dope added up based on whatever Whatever my guy that I was dating, he said, uh, oh, John, it was horrible. It was a circus. It was people who I had never even met before on the stand saying, oh, yeah, I got three kilos from her this time. Hey, what, what, was it, her- what was it like, like just having to sit there? not being able to say anything and, and hearing that stuff. It was, well, uh, John, I didn't sit there and not say anything. I almost ended up with life because I got a three point enhancement. Um, during court, I had an outburst. Um, mm-hmm. the, the guy that I was dating, um, he got off the stand and like, after he testified, look at me and like mouth the words, I love you. And I lost it. I lost, yeah, I lost it. I, I lost it during the break and, you know, mm-hmm. just told him, you know, like things, you know, I, I did say horrible things, but it was out of anger. Uh, how could you love me? You standing here. Basically, you see you ruining my life is, is the way I was seeing it. So mm-hmm. um, they had what they called obstruction of justice. So they were saying I was obstructing justice and intimidating the witness. But thank God at uh, sentencing, the judge didn't. He said we have to see, you know, he didn't he didn't give me the three point enhancement that would have given me life. I would have had life because it would have pushed me to a level 41. Wow. Yeah, so it was extremely hard sitting there watching people, especially people that you know, people that you've helped, uh, you know, point the finger and say, her, she did it, she did it. And uh, most of them were men. You know, most of them, most of them were were supposed to be men. Anyway, uh, they mostly were men. So it was hard and it was hurtful. And then I think with him, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I just, I just had an outburst. So after going through all of that, during your during your trial, um, you finally get your your sentence, and you know what you're facing. Um, what what was your mindset like at, at that point in time? You know, thinking knowing that you're going to be in there, you ended up serving for the first like three days. Yeah, for like I was 30 years old at the time when it happened. So like for the first three days, I kind of just shut down. Uh, actually, my mom ended up calling the jail, telling them like, you know, my daughter hasn't called home. But I just kind of like shut down, you know, didn't, didn't come. I really didn't come out that that pod anyway when in the county jail. But I just kind of just shut down and just like slept and um, just was thinking like, wow, you know. But after I snapped out of it and everything after those three days, John, I just told myself I had to fight. 
You know, I've been a fighter. The one thing about me, I, I got a lot of mouth, a lot of smarts, and and I'm a fight to, you know, to to it's up to it's over with. So I just told myself, you know, I just got to fight to try to, you know, to get out of prison. And then um, every time I lost a pill or something like that, I did get sad, and I would call my father. You know, he had to bring me back to reality. You know, because I just had those moments. But for the most part, I just had to just keep telling myself, just fight, just fight, just fight. You know, something will come through. But it was like, it was it was shocking. Like, man, this America, they really get people 30 years and that's never off of what somebody said. You know, that's the way I looked at it. Yeah. So it, it's, it sounds like you had some family support from your uh, from your parents. How, how important was that to you being able to give you, you know, the, the strength to, to make it through? Oh, God, I thank God. For, I thank God for my parents, um, you know. Even though, like, you know, we were spoiled as kids and everything and wasn't raised like that. They never once turned their back on me, John. They never once be- said, you knew better or, you know, anything like that. Mm-hmm. What they used to just tell me, we're going to get through it. You know, we'll get through it is what they tell me. So that was extremely important. And more importantly, they made sure I was able to maintain a good relationship with my son. My mom brought my son to see me. When I first went to prison, they would come every weekend and stay the entire weekend and then as time went on, I was able to, you know, cope with my time. So I told them they didn't have to come all the time. And I didn't want my son having to spend his weekends, you know, visiting me inside of a facility, especially when he was starting to become a teenager. You know, he played ball and mm-hmm. teens want to have a life, you know, so I understood that. So they came less, but I always got to see him, always was able to call home, never wanted for anything. Only thing I couldn't do was leave prison. And um, I had great friends, too. You know, my um, my best friends, you know from my childhood and then um, girls that I met while I was in Atlanta, my friend Toya and my friend D, they came to see me, Monica, my best friend, Talisha Light. So I had a really good support system. Me and my sister, super close. She always came having visits and seeing those familiar faces. It makes a difference. And I always receive mail, John, from everywhere. I always mm-hmm. receive mail. Like it, it was towards the end of my sentence. It was a standing joke. Because mail call is like the big thing of the day in prison, you know. So how did I get mail every day? But it was because of the support system that I had. And I just was, I'm thankful. And even coming home, it just makes a difference having people that support you, solid people, you know, that's not in the streets, that wasn't into that lifestyle. And, you know, coming home, it makes the transition so much more easier. Yeah. um, I don't know how people... See, you know, seeing people on both sides who have support from their family and friends and people who don't, I mean, the ones who make it through and, you know, make it out of the system without that support, I, I don't know how they do it. Um, yeah, so it's, I really can say, it. you know, it's, it's, I couldn't imagine it, you know, and um, coming home, that the one thing while I was in prison, I wanted to start a nonprofit for children whose parents are incarcerated because I was able to, to see the difference between my child and somebody else's child. And I was mm-hmm. able to see women who did had not seen their children. One girl hadn't seen her child in 10 years. And wow. I couldn't imagine not seeing my child for 10 years. So that really touched me. And, and I know it's hard for children on that end, as well as me being in prison and witnessing women. It makes them more angrier. Fights are more prone to happen. And, you know, it, it's just bad on both ends. So the, it, the support really does make a difference. That's why I always tell people, like, if you have someone incarcerated, if you don't do anything but send them a card, send them pictures, it, you know, it mm-hmm. counts. Malik would do stuff like, you you know, like when the boards changed that Wendy's to electronic and everything, you know, I was in prison. So Malik would send 
pictures of things that changed on the outside. And it made mm. a difference because when I come home, everything isn't just a stark, you know, shocker to me. It's like I've seen it before, you know? Hey, we're going to take a quick break in the show here today. And, you know, we're talking about privacy. We're talking about building, uh, you know, building mobile income. And uh, you've heard us talk about in the show before the Nomad Network, creator of the Nomad Network and host of Wealth, Power and Influence, Jason Stapleton, is holding an event that really aligns really well with this message coming up on December 11th. The event is called Discover 2022. And, you know, this is right in the wheelhouse for people who are looking to really unlock their potential, to look for different ways to recession-proof their income. Jason's going to be talking about a bunch of different side hustles that can be started up really quickly. You can discover who needs you most and what they will pay for it. This is a free event. It's going to help you get some clarity and vision around uh, what you need to do really in your life. So Jason is an expert in this field, as you know. And uh, you can attend this event for free. Uh, you can do that by going to www.stapletonagency.com slash discover hyphen lions. So that link, if you don't have a pen to write that down, you can just go to the show notes page for this show. I'll have it there. And uh, you can click on it, attend the event, and uh, unlock your potential, guys. Let's do it. No, that's... I mean, that ha- I'm sure that helps a ton. Um, yeah. Just to, to ease, even those little things, I'm sure they, they ease the adjustment back in. Just even just a little bit, that, that helps. Yeah. So to talk a little bit more about your time in prison, and, and then, we'll, then we'll get to, uh, you know, getting, getting free. This is called mm-hmm. Finding Freedom. So we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> that and talk about, you know, a little more about your adjustment, um, you know, getting back into uh, life on the outside, but mm-hmm. in prison. So you, we talked about the, your family supporting you and helping you. What was the rest of your experience like? Was it, I mean, talk about from the inside, was was it, you know, really difficult? Were you able to adjust to it and sort of, you know, some people thrive sort of in that. It's a weird thing to say, but some people do yeah. very well in that environment in prison. Did you struggle with it? Uh, in the beginning, it was kind of hard. I felt like I couldn't adjust because, for one, like I said, I, I am mouthy. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, two, I, I really just don't like people telling me what to do. So that it was a hard adjustment. And then I was in an open bay, what they call an open bay dorm. And that means that it's like 100 beds. Imagine a warehouse mm. and just 100 bunk beds in that uh, in that warehouse. So you wake up, you look around, people looking at you. You go to sleep, people looking at you. It's no sense of privacy whatsoever. So that was really hard to be in an open dorm with like a bunch of women I did not know. I felt like I didn't have anything in common with them. It was just really, really hard. And um, I hung around a lot of dudes. So that was another hard adjustment to get used to being around women every day. And and then uh, the guards, that was an adjustment. You know, me and my mouth, some of them are so nasty and it, it took me some time. It took me some time to adjust. And I can say it probably took me eight years to stop getting in trouble. I got in a yeah. lot of trouble. Yeah, it took me about eight years to stop going to the to the shoe. Uh, one day I called my father because when you go to the shoe, you only allow one phone call every 30 days. So being that my father still lived in New Jersey and my mother was closer to me in Atlanta, I would use my one phone call to call my father and tell him, like, tell mommy to make sure y'all send me books. I need, you know, five magazines. I can have this. I can have that. So this one particular time, John, I called him and told him, 
Daddy, I'm back in the shoe. Um, make sure you send me magazines. He said, oh, no. Oh, no, it stops. This is it. He said, I agree to do the time with you, but this is double time, and I'm not doing it. So that kind of was like a wake-up call. You know, like, they tired of me being in the shoe. They tired of me not being able to call. But it was hard. It was hard to adjust. It, 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 yeah, it was hard. It was hard. What was, the, what was the longest stretch you had in the shoe? 17 months. Wow. 17 months. 23, 23, one is yeah, 23, one, uh, Sunday through Thursday, Friday is 24 hours. And, um, you only get the shower Monday, Wednesday and Friday. So as a woman, so the other days I had to stand up in the sink and wash up, you know, it was just hard. I, I mean, I know the, the president, everybody got t senators. I know they got tired of me writing because I've just felt like it was just inhumane. Okay. It's one thing to be punished. It's a whole nother thing to just add this into it. That's inhumane. We're women and we can't take a shower. And then when they do take you out to take a shower, they take you out of handcuffs. When you get to the shower, when they take it from the time they take the handcuffs off, they tell you they have 10 minutes. If it's a nasty guard, they literally mean 10 minutes. And that's just, I mean, you know, women, it's, it's just so much we have to do in the shower. You know, it's not, it's not like a man. And especially yeah. like, John, you know, like that time of month for women, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. But hey, it's prison and they feel like you put yourself there so you have to deal with it. So yeah, 17 months was the longest stretch that I did. What what was that? Can you say what what that was for? What what caused you being there being there for yeah, 17 months? Yeah, I can months? tell you what it was. It was the prosecuting them being nasty. Uh what was happening was they wanted some guys and they knew that I had connection to the guys. So what they did was they made it seem like I had a court date, which is a writ. And uh, brought me back down down to Florida to uh, prison and basically just had me in the shoe, basically just torture me. And every time, you know, I tried to explain to the warden and what was going on, no one really believed me. It took for the uh, region to come around. Harvey Lappin at the time was the, the BOP. He was a regional director. And, of course, mm -hmm. you know, they tell you don't talk to them when they come. But I didn't have anything to lose. At this time, I had been in the shoe for 16 months. What could you take from me? It was nothing else you could take from me. So when he came around... I explained to him what was going on and I showed him a letter where I had a motion in court and the court couldn't even find me. So um, I don't know what he did, but two weeks later I was back on the airlift and they let me out. Wow. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's freaking unbelievable. Yeah. My prosecutor, he wasn't nut. He, that man, I used to think, did I know him in another life or something? It was just like, you know, he just had a personal vendetta, but I mean, I get it. You know, they, he, um, one day he said to me that, uh, I'm stupid for sitting in prison, basically, because, you know, I knew so, so many dudes, so many different ties in different states where if I would have just given them up, you know, they would cut my sentence. But I wasn't raised like that. Number one, you know, I was raised that um, you have to handle the consequences for what your choices, what you choose to do. Mm -hmm. You have to handle the consequences. Don't point the finger or point the blame, you know, on anyone else. So that's what I had to stand on. I mean, that's that's really got to be a difficult thing to do especially after you sat there at your own trial and watched everyone flip on you. And then, you know, you're in this situation, you're, you're stuck in solitary confinement for 17 months and you could have gotten out of it. Just, you just, you just got to testify against what one guy. So does that go back to the way you were raised that, that that's ingrained in you or yeah, where, where does in, that come from? Yeah. It's embedded in me. It's embedded in me, John. You don't, as, as a kid, you tell, you know, you told not to be a tattleteller. Don't be a tattletale. Mm -hmm. You know, and as you get older, you just understand that, hey, you have to, if you chose to do it, this is what you chose to do. No one put a gun to 
idea had no one made you do it. So that it's just ingrained me. I'm not telling anybody. I'm not ruining anybody else's life. If y'all want them, you get paid. I don't know how many thousands of dollars a year, but you go get them. You do it because I'm not doing it for you. Hmm. Yeah. So let's uh, let's turn the page here. And I guess first, is there anything I missed in your that you want to talk about from your time in prison that that's it's really important to bring to bring out that that you want that I didn't ask you about? Uh Mm, no, not really. I mean, okay. I'm pretty sure from all the podcasts you do, you know, you have to adjust in a way like to eat prison food, learn how to mm-hmm. cook in the microwave. Uh, I didn't know how to make up a prison bed when I got there. I, they hand you like a bedroll with a blanket and um, two sheets and a pillowcase. And I went back to the guard and I said, um, you gave me two flat sheets. You didn't give me a fitted sheet. She busted out and started laughing. at She's like, fitted sheet? Girl, you know where you are. You better learn how to tie that bed. So, you know, it was just, it's, it's things like that that you have to learn. And I always said, I call prison woo because it's a world of our own. It's really a separate world inside of the world that we, you know, we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, you know, very good guards too, you know, that I met along the way. So everybody's not bad. Yeah, I, I met, you know, I met some really nice people along the way. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's good prison guards, but I mean, from every everything I hear, people have done time in prison. I mean, you don't hear a lot of good things about prison guards, and it just it just kind of makes sense. That's not going to attract you know the the best and the the brightest and the nicest people. Those kind of yeah. conditions, people don't want to work in that conditions and do that job. So yeah, and it is it, it's hard on them too. It's stressful. Prison is a stressful environment. So sometimes you understand it, but it was days where, you know, me and my mouth, I had to tell them, don't bring what you got on going on out there, you know, in here. So that was, that was a, a lot of people used to joke and say, oh, they'll be glad when you leave. You know, they probably happier you going than you are, you know, that's a bad joke to say. <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the, the, the happy part of this story. One of the happy parts of this story is, is getting released. So can you talk about how that how that came about. I, I know that you got your, you got your sentence reduced. So actually mm-hmm. maybe talk about that first. If you talk about how, how you went about getting uh, your sentence reduced. Okay. So, uh, I was taking a creative writing class and the lady that taught the creative writing class, she would come from the outside and, you know, teaching. she was saying, Oh, you just, you know, you're a really good writer. And I met this Russian lady in class named Pat. And, mm-hmm. um, Pat just kind of took to me, you know, she was like, I can't believe we have 30 years hate the government, you know, then we have to do something about it. Pat was that type of person. But um, mm-hmm. I was telling like Pat out and fault, you know, it's not too much. If something come through, then maybe so. So what ended up coming through was uh, they created a law called all drugs minus two. And it didn't have to go through Congress. It was through the sentencing commission. This is, you know, the sentencing commission has the power to change the guidelines and mm-hmm. um, all drugs minus two mean all drug offenders, as long as I think he wasn't like a career offender and uh, you were nonviolent, that your level came down two points. So I was a level 39. So minus the two points, it brought me to level 37. So that took off eight years and 10 months of my sentence, which brought me down to 21 years and 10 months. And um, the law went through in 14, but it was such a backlog because some people got immediate release and everything. Mine didn't come through until February of 2017. But nonetheless, I was still happy. And guess where I was when I got the news? Where? In the shoe. (laughs) 
that time I was in the shoe for oh um an officer. They were saying that an officer was bringing me in contraband and all, all kind of stuff. Yeah, so I was in the shoe once again under investigation. <laughs> yeah. So so you find out in the shoe that you're getting a sentence reduction. I'm sure that you know lifted your spirits a little bit. Um, so when you finally did get out on compassionate release, how how did that play out? Is that something that you knew was coming, or did it come out of nowhere? No, it didn't come out. Okay, so um, again, at, like in 2014 as well, no, 17, Obama had the where he had people, you know, the nonviolent offenders. It was a criteria for clemency. So mm-hmm. Amy Pova of Can Do Clemency, yeah. um, which is a she's a great lady, you know, done a lot of she's, work. She's the, she's the best. She, um, I, yeah. Yeah. She, I don't know. I don't know how. I mean, just watching everything she does on you know social media, posting about everywhere she's traveling, everyone she's. I, I don't know how she does it, honestly. But <laughs> but I'm, Amy uh, heard about my story, reached out. We started going, you know, back and forth or whatever. So. She really tried, you know, at one time we really thought that I was going to get clemency. And um, at the time when Amy was doing the clemency, she had a lady named Georgine Arsons who also worked with her. And she was appointed like they called it the guardian angel uh, system. I can't do so. She was my guardian angel. And um, I mean, this lady went to live lives for me, John. She uh, Senator Cory Booker. He wrote, a, you know, had a recommend letter of recommendation for me to get it. Um, she reached out to so many people and it just seemed like I was going to get it, but mm-hmm. I was denied. And, you know, we was like, just could not believe that I was denied because again, I had never been in any trouble and, you know, it just, it just didn't make sense. But, um, of course the prosecuting them, they opposed it, which, you know, is something that needs to change. They shouldn't even have a part in people receiving clemency. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that went on and, but Georgine and I stayed in contact. So much so now I tell her I'm her daughter that stayed out in the sun too long. You know, that's that's a joke. That's a joke we have. And um, she she when Compassion Release started, she was saying, I really think we should try this, Angela. You know, of course, sometimes you get tired after so many no's. It's just like, oh, you know, really again. Mm -hmm. And then so. um, She reached out to a guy named Tommy Walker. I don't know if you, you heard of Tommy. Tommy did time. He did 25 years. He actually wrote his own motion and got himself out of prison, but he started. I um, yeah, I don't know him. I don't think. You don't know Tommy Walker? Yeah, it's, uh, his his organization is called Second Chance for Real. No, I don't know him. I probably should know him, but yeah, you should know Tommy. <laughs> Tommy has helped countless of people. To, yeah, to to get mm-hmm. out of prison, he got himself out of prison. He's an amazing man. He um, meet him and Georgine, and uh, he he wrote the motion. And we filed a motion and and the judge granted it. And I was in quarantine at the time because I had COVID. And um, I didn't even know. And a girl from downstairs came and like slid a note under the door telling me like, oh, Corinne said you get out on January 13th. I'm like, huh? And uh, I didn't believe it. And so the next day I asked my counselor, like, did you hear that I was getting, did you hear any news? And he said, no. So I just was, you know, I'm like, well, where is they getting it from? So it was like hard to believe. Wouldn't give me a phone call. So Friday, I raised so much hell. They finally told me I could use the phone for five minutes. And um, I called my mom and I was like, mom, she's like, girl, you know, you're coming home. And I was like, mom, is it true? She was like, it's true. The judge signed your paper. You're coming home. 
<laughs> so that, that's, I mean, that's got to be amazing. Just, I mean, what were your, what was your your emotions, your feelings, just in that moment when you find out after all this time, all the times going doing seventeen months in the shoe, spent spending all these years in prison when you you, I mean. You can't, you can't, you know, be with your family. What, what, what were your emotions in that time? Have you ever been uh, so excited? Just a, a rush of hotness just ran through my body, and um, I just was thankful to God. You know, like my faith in God, and I just was like, wow. Sometimes, John, you know, you can question God. Like, are you really there? You really exist? Mm-hmm. And you know, it was times I, I had my doubtful moments, but but it was just that God had another plan. So in that moment, I just I just was happy. And I was like, it's finally here. And I was telling them, y'all can have everything. I don't want anything. My locker's open, babe. Take what you want. <laughs> that's that's incredible. So so w- when you did get out, um, w- what was the first thing you did? Okay, my father flew in from New Jersey. And um, my mom and them picked him up at the airport. So my sister, my brother, my sons, uh, my my two best friends, you know, they all came in a sprinter and, you know, picked me up. Oh, God, that walk from walking out of that gate to, you know, to the car. It just seemed like it was a long walk, you know, and then I started running and it just felt so good. And we just, you know, hugged, of course, and cried. Mm-hmm. And um, we just sat there like talking for a while, you know, like went to get something to eat and just sat there and talk. I got car sick. I couldn't, I had, they had to stop and give me some nauseous pills. I guess I hadn't moved in so long, you know, so I got car sick. But um, that first night, I really didn't do anything. Just enjoyed my family. And, you know, one of my play brothers, Clifton, he did all the driving. We just laughed and joked. I really didn't do anything that first night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then, um, you know, once you'd been out for a while, what would you say, what was the biggest obstacle, the, the most difficult adjustment um, to uh, kind of either relearn or learn for the first time? I would say my biggest obstacle is that doggone computer. <laughs> that, yeah, it's not so much the fun. It's technology, you know, and even yeah. though I know some, you know, some computer stuff, some computer stuff doesn't leave you. But say, for example, like right now, when I got ready to get on my MacBook to do the podcast, I had to end up using my phone because it was saying that StreamYard, the computer doesn't, you know, support it. So that 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 probably is like my biggest. That's my biggest thing. The computer. Yeah, that's that's got to be. So I mean, that's got to be. It's frustrating for me when I deal with stuff like that. But so how how do you deal with? Uh, I mean, because a lot of people don't think about that. You know, when an individual gets out of prison, they have all these. You know, there's little hurdles everywhere. How do you deal with that frustration when you come when you come up on it? One day the printer went offline. John, you would have thought that they said I had to go back to prison. <laughs> oh, I was losing. I couldn't figure it out. Like, why is it offline? You know, the Wi-Fi was on. I tried that. I tried unplugging it. So in that moment, I just was so frustrated. And, uh, and, and I just couldn't, you know, almost to the point where I was almost about to cry. Like, I cannot believe I can't get this, this printer to get back online. But I ended up calling one of my friends, T. Michael. He's very good with, he's very tech savvy. And um, he helped me and walked me through what he was saying. First, he was saying we was going to undo the modem. I'm like, no, is that going to make the TVs go out too? I don't feel like reprogramming. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, okay, we'll try, we'll try it another way, Sunshine. So we did. We just took it off and added it back. 
in Zoom just like that. It was back working, but he, um, at first I had given up. I was like, just forget it. I'm not doing it. It doesn't matter. I'll talk to you later. But he wouldn't give up. So I'm just mm -hmm. thankful for him too. But in those moments, it, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. Yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, the things you're doing since you've been out. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So while I was in prison, um, I wanted to do a t-shirt line and the name of the company is called Pop. And they're like, it, it just, it, it like, just cut out there when you see, can you say that again? It just cut out right when you said that. Called Felons Rock. And you know, people like, why would you name your company Felons Rock? And I'm like, because we do. Some of the most smartest people are incarcerated mm -hmm. and some of the most creative people are home and, you know, can run Fortune 500 companies and everything, This, you know, but it's like felons aren't really given a fair chance. And a lot of people are embarrassed about being a felon. And I just want to take that stigma, you know, that sting away from it. Hey, you made a mistake, but life still goes on. You know, you have to pick the pieces up and go on. And I just mm -hmm. feel like if you served your time, there's no reason why America should still treat people the way that they do once they come home from prison. If you served your time and you did what you're supposed to do, you should be able to reintegrate back into society as a citizen, not having to wear like a cloak of shame. So I created Felons Rock and um, started my T-shirt line. Uh, and um, I've also, I'm in the process of publishing my first book, which is a self-help book that will be out soon. And awesome. um, I mentor with the DA's office. I mentor children you know, who are already on probation to try to deter them from going down the path that I chose to tell them, you know, it's not too late, you know, because they're still young, they're teenagers. So I just kind mm -hmm. of been in that work, that, that field of work. And I work with an organization, Free, Freedom for Choice with uh, Dr. Omar Howard. I work with them in the Offenders Alumni Association. So I do a lot of volunteer to mentor and uh, do administrative work for them. But I know that I'll spend the rest of my life in, in this, you know, this genre, it'll be reentry and criminal justice, criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I told you before when we were texting back and forth that, that I, I love, I love the name. I love felons rock. That's uh <laughs> that's a great, that's a great brand. And I mean, it's, it's true. It's, if you think about, you know, there has been some good criminal justice reform, not enough, but, but, but there has been some real good stuff that has happened in the past, you know, five, five, 10 years. Uh, it's not moving quickly enough, but the driver behind that is felons. It's been yeah. people who ha who have been in the system. It wouldn't have happened any other way. And and I mean, and there's a reason for that because they know exactly what needs to be changed, where the system is broken, because they've experienced it firsthand. People like yourself. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that, and I wish you the best of luck um, with the with your t-shirt line and uh, and, and with uh, you know meeting your goals and and meeting your your vision with that. And along the line of vision, I like to ask people, you know, it's been since January since you got out, so it hasn't been that long. You haven't had much time. So um, just thinking ahead a little bit farther, if you look out five or 10 years from now, uh, what types of things um, do you see for yourself? Public speaking. That's my dream, public speaking. Mm -hmm. I want to be a motivational speaker. Not awesome. want to be, I am going to be a motivational speaker. That's that's what I want to do. And um, also my nonprofit, Chance to Change. And um, like I told you earlier, it's, for, it's geared towards children whose parents are incarcerated. But um, not only just the kids, but the parent as well. To maybe create a curriculum for them to do, to share, to be able to stay in contact with each other. Uh, like you said, I've been through the system, so no, I know what it takes to get through. 
And mm-hmm. um, I also know what it takes to to help deter. And, you know, we talk about reentry and we talk about um, recidivism, but we never talk about actually breaking the chain and the root of it. So it starts and we have to catch the children mm-hmm. at a young age, especially those who have parents that are incarcerated. So th- that's, that's where I see myself. I just see myself, you know, trying to break another chain down in this unfair system, you know, that we have and just rock it out as a felon. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. Sh- striking the root. I mean, yeah, if you don't get to the root of the problem, you're not going to solve the problem. So that's, yeah. uh, yeah. That's an Make awesome sure you get thing. a t-shirt, felonsrocks.com. Definitely. And I, I will put that on the, uh, the show notes page as well. So people can find the link there too. Uh, Angela, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I'll just give you a, a minute here. Anything else you want to share with my audience or, uh, any, anything else you need to plug social media, um, anything like that? Okay. Yeah. So on social media, on Facebook, um, I'm Felons Rock, Instagram Felons Rock. The book will be coming uh, February, Pit to Palace Mentality, 10 Key Principles to Help You See Your Way Through Your Worst Situation. Um, it's not just, just you know, woohoo stuff. It's, it's really good principles. Like I said, um, doing 17 months in solitary confinement, that's like going in your bathroom, not your big bathroom, your half bathroom, your mm-hmm. half-size bathroom in your house. Just imagine going in there and closing the door. In there, and that's just how big that room is. So all I had was myself, my thoughts, and God, and um, I was able to get through. And I know it's people out there, especially now, it's the holiday season. A lot of people depressed or you know discouraged or whatever. But um, what I used to tell myself, and I'll share with everybody else, is just wake up in the morning, put your foot on the floor, and put one foot in the other, and not and just go forward. Just keep moving forward. We have to push forward, keep going, not looking back, and not being scared. Thanks again, John. Well, thank you, Angela, for coming on the show. And I look forward to seeing you know what you accomplish here with your book and everything else. And love to have you back on uh, once yes, that all happens. Definitely comes have out. me back on when this book get published. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sounds good, Angela. Thank all right. You. Thank you so much, John, again. Hope you guys enjoyed another great interview, another great conversation here on Finding Freedom. Today's episode brought to you by uh, the good people. Nate and Charlie at Good Morning Liberty and their five-day-per-week show where they dive into current events and uh, give you a, uh, a sane take, a nice filter on the on the news and political landscape uh, to help you to navigate uh, these turbulent times. Of course, you can subscribe to Good Morning Liberty wherever you get your podcasts. So do that today. And also brought to you by Tyler Colford, also known as Crypto Man. Uh, Tyler is a rapper. And uh, of course, you've probably heard his songs here on this show. Tyler's been a longtime supporter of us here at Lions of Liberty. And I want to uh, encourage you all to go and find his work on iHeartRadio, on Spotify, under Crypto Man, YouTube as well. Check him out, listen to his music, share his music, and thank you, Tyler, for the support. Guys, if you like what you're hearing here at Lines of Liberty, if you like these shows and uh, you don't want to miss them, I mean, like, I know, like, when I get into a podcast, there's only, there's a few podcasts that I, I don't miss an episode, but there's a lot more podcasts where I subscribe and I mi- listen to most episodes. So, with Lines of Liberty, like a lot of podcasts, but especially Lines of Liberty, because of the nature of our shows, our variety show format, and we're always bringing on different guests, uh, different interesting characters, 
you want to subscribe because you don't want to miss a show. You might miss an episode with someone that you really wanted to hear. And because you're not checking the feed, it's not coming to your phone. Um, you're going to miss it when it's dropped. You're going to miss out being in on that initial conversation, uh, maybe happening in the Lions of Liberty Forum, which you can find on Facebook, or maybe happening in our uh, Lions Pride, our private Facebook group, or maybe over on um, Locals, which you can join, uh, become a patron there, uh, lionsofliberty.locals.com. Or if you're a, a patron fan, uh, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty and join up there. You know, we have a bunch of different levels you can join at, get access to the show, you can sponsor shows. You can even produce shows at a certain level. Of course, all the merchandise, all that stuff, you get that at certain levels too. Or if you just want to buy our t-shirts, we got some great designs. Check them out, lionsofliberty.store. Guys, it's been a great show. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I will see you all next week. In the meantime, remember to keep your head up and the fire is liberty burning. <laughs> <laughs>